pastoral podcast that discusses common and often controversial topics from a biblical perspective. My name is Matt Miller. I'm Matt Henry, and we're talking about church government, and we're on the issue of elder qualifications. If you hear a little whimpering in the background, that's just Matt Miller. He's sick, but he's soldiering through for the sake of you, our listener. Mm-hmm. You know what they should do? Buy a coffee mug. Just just for me. Just, just to do it, yeah. Yep. Just to motivate you. Whatever. Anyhow. <laughs> it's going to be a one-sided podcast today. <laughs> yeah, it is. Um, good thing we have assigned readings. So, <laughs> we're in a very important place, though, in our study through systematic theology, um, specifically now the qualifications of those who are going to lead the church. And obviously, it's not a small thing, um, because we see the same mistakes getting played out over and over and over again. Uh, people who are simply gifted in speaking, who are then placed in oversight positions in the church. But what we find out later on is that they were never truly qualified to do so. Um, I think one of the most egregious ones was, of course, uh, Joshua Taylor, right? That's his last name? Josh Taylor? Uh, no, Josh. Justin Taylor. No. Joshua Harris. Joshua Harris. Yeah. Poor Justin Taylor. He's like, whoa, whoa. <laughs> uh, but there's a guy. He, here he was uh, brought to great prominence and then ultimately just defaults from the whole Christian faith. There was something deficient that should have been seen. Yeah. Um, but he was a gifted speaker. So we see it. We see it as a great evil. The cost to the health of the church on both a macro and micro level is actually rather extreme. In fact, I remember um, when I was preaching through the Gospel of John, and when I got to John 10, where Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd, I, I actually paused for a bit there and went off on a bit of an excursus to try to help the people see the huge need to actually have a pastor who is a true shepherd. In other words, the one who sees himself not as some power monger, but actually as an under-shepherd who properly portrays the good shepherd, the true shepherd. Um, and in that passage, uh, there's the imagery of the hireling as opposed to the faithful shepherd that we have in Christ. Uh, and today we see this in so many ways. The hireling does his work as just that. It's a job. He has no love for the sheep, and at the first hint of attack or danger, he flees. Um, Jesus, on the other hand, never leaves the sheep. He stands before them. He protects them from every sort of danger. Uh, when it comes to feeding, the hireling does what he wants. Uh, but the Lord always does what's best for the sheep. He always feeds them the word. Um, and so if anyone wants to shepherd some of Jesus' sheep, he better take on that same spirit and the same convictions of the Lord. And so Matt and I have watched this play out in so many ways over the years. It's fascinating in this time of COVID how we have so many who come to our church from other churches. Why? Because they're just simply looking for a place to worship. Uh, they want to gather, but they also come with marks upon their heart that expose their former churches and the leaders there. 
Sometimes that's actually a blessing. We see that they had been well cared for, where we watch people who come who were under the care then of faithful men, and so they have a reflection of stability and maturity. But too often what we see is that there are people who have never really been shepherded. Their theology and their lives reflect that they were not fed the word in the significant way they were not cared for. Um, and so this is seen in the lack of knowledge they possess. In other words, uh, theology and Bible doctrine is not a major part of their worldview. Another way we would see it is in their lives. Um, even if they had a solid teaching from the pulpit uh, in their church, somehow it didn't translate down into the other aspects of the church life. So what was taught in the pulpit is not reflected in the youth gatherings, in the Sunday school, in the women's ministry. And you begin to realize that their church did not actually expect you to take what was taught and put it into action. And so instead, we get heavily psychologized individuals who don't think in biblical categories, but worldly, psychological ones. We see them love the Enneagram, even though it could not drag you into a more uh, mature, godly place at its very best. It, it, it's just of no value. We don't attack them because the problem is not with them, at least, at, at least initially, right? Um, it's, it's with the church or the churches they used to attend. And this is what they were taught. So when we have a person who thinks about social justice in a worldly manner, we know that somehow this became part of their church experience. So leadership in the church is not brand building. It's not a means to move a man into bigger things. It's a holy work, and it comes with great blessing and also great pain for those who enter into it. So too many people do not know what it's like to be under the care of true shepherds. They can't even recall the last time someone cared for their soul in any significant way. Instead, they're just trying to, find, trying to do the best they can, and therefore, so many other influences end up coming to bear in their lives. And the long-term effects of godly leadership in the lives of people is actually a very beautiful thing. The opposite is true as well. The long-term effects of unfaithful leadership leads to long-term pain. So we're going to take a couple of episodes, at the very least, to work through the qualifications that God has given to the leaders of the church. And these are, of are non-negotiable. Um, these are God's demands for the church, for any church. And we have no reason to expect his blessing on a church that wants people to tickle their ears or to teach them about their felt needs rather than a faithful exposition and application of God's word. And the leaders should expect to reap the terrible harvest of ungodliness when they themselves are ungodly. So listen carefully to these qualifications. Um, they will help immensely those who are considering the state of their own church. Uh, a church, and this is the simple truth, a church cannot arise, arise above their own leadership. Um, so let us talk then about some of these qualifications and of any church leader. And we use the word leader here in a broad term, um, but when, as we use the word leader, what we mean is elder. Uh, that is the normal term that is used in the New Testament. Um, but the term is less important than the function. Uh, the one who will occupy this role, in other words. So, so if you got a guy that claims to be the apostle or the bishop or the vice regent or you, whatever, yeah, he's talking about an elder. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He just wants to use the different word. Mm -hmm. So First Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1 um, says, It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of an overseer, elder, 
um, it is a fine work that he desires to do. So in this passage, we find that the office of an elder is, as Paul says, a fine work to desire after. And the word desire there can have two meanings. It could either be a positive one or a negative one. Uh, In a positive sense, um, it means to long for or to strongly desire. In the negative sense, it would be the idea of lusting or craving after something that is sinful. Paul tells us that this desire here is not bad, so he's using it in the positive sense. Yeah. Um, At the same time, uh, it is not sufficient, and the reason for that is because that internal desire there is something entirely subjective. And and so you have a feeling that God is calling you to be an elder. Um, we would say that does not mean that it's true. I, I actually had this last summer. Someone asked, how do you know if you're called to be a pastor? And I, it's a good question in one sense. Yeah, I yeah. remember that wrestle yeah. early on. Um, I spent years going back and forth. Um, and I ultimately landed with because I wondered, is God calling me to this? Is he calling me to this? Because that's the verbiage I'd always heard. And when I just started to look at the text, I realized this isn't that. It's not a calling that you're to therefore right. answer. Rather, it's a desire. That's how he labels it here. So so you can have that desire, and that's a good thing. That does not mean anything. Yes. That's <laughs> the key part, though. Yeah. Um, so don't use the word call. I feel called. Use the word, I have a desire. Now let's see if you're qualified. And and I think pastorally, that's a huge thing for any pastor when he has a young man who comes and says, I really sense God's call in X way. It's, they shouldn't be too impressed. They shouldn't stifle that, uh, but they shouldn't be impressed. It's like, okay, that's great. Um, let's, let's talk then about where you're at. And so now let's go from the subjective into that objective uh, world. Absolutely. And that is true for anyone who wants to do pastoring vocationally, but equally true for anyone who would aspire to the position of a lay elder as well. Yeah. Um, So God has um, given us objective standards by which to measure ourselves. Uh, And it's important to note, however, as we look at these qualifications, that these qualifications, except the ability to teach are for all Christians. Yeah. Yeah. And that's because an elder is ultimately going to be a, an example. Yeah. Right? So he should be something that others should say, I want my house to look like that. I want my speech to be like that, etc." Yeah. Yeah. And even that one with teaching, remember, it's apt to teach. Yeah. So there is an aspect in which that too is also true, could be true for Christians, because they, they Actually, need to be able to you're right. Speak. I, I agree with you on that. They should be able to speak at some level to things. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they have to teach their children, yes. husband with wives, uh, telling the gospel, all that is teaching. So I, I would, I'd agree with that. So there, there are three um, primary passages which discuss church leadership uh, that, that are the prime, you know, sources that need to be examined. So it's 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 26, Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. Those are your, your key passages. Right. Um, so we're, gonna, we're not going to look at each one of these point by point. Rather, we're going to examine them together as we look at the various groupings of qualifications. Um, and this is something that we did when we, or that we do when we teach in our travels. Right, right. Um, this is how we approach it, because it'd be, it'd take too much time to <laughs> go through every single passage point by point. Um, so, so 
we're comfortable doing this. And so this is how we're going to approach it. We think it's helpful. All right. So we're going to deal with the first grouping uh, and we're just going to label it personal qualifications. And so these are the qualifications that are connected to him himself as in his character. So the first thing would be that he needs to be humble enough to be willing to be examined. Uh, that's that's an implied point. Um, in 1 Timothy 3.1, he commends those who desire to be an elder. And then at the same time, he immediately follows it with standards, which will require that there be a time of examination. And that can be very trying to a person. And this can be very humbling as a person's weaknesses then come under scrutiny. Um, and so, that's that. You just have to have that sense of humility, willing to be examined. Now, that after that, then the technically the first personal qualification is that he must be a man. It, uh, you probably did not notice, but in the introduction, we chose not to use the word man. This is uh, this is because too many see women as their spiritual leaders, and they don't consider if that all by itself is something good and right. Um, but in reality. It is. It's, it's a man that must be your spiritual leader in the church. The words used for elder, overseer, shepherd are all in the masculine. So in 1 Timothy 3.2 example, it says a one-woman man. That's really hard for a woman to be a one-woman man, right, right. Uh, uh, but somehow they work it. Uh, 1 Timothy 2.12 forbids the woman to teach a man or to have authority over a man. Now, some can argue that this only refers to a pastor, not an elder, and that's why we actually spent so much time on the terms. So we've learned now that the pastor or shepherd and the elder and the overseer are all the same office. There's a purpose behind that. Another common argument you'll hear comes from Titus 2.3, where it says in Titus 2.3, older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips or enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good. And they seize on that idea where it says presbutus. Uh, it's, it, that's the Greek word there. Some try to make the argument that this is talking about female elders. The problem, though, is that it's guilty of proof texting and reading into the text what you want it to say. Um, it just means an old lady, uh, an older woman. Uh, that's all it means. Um, Second, it fails to have the context drive the sense of the word. Here, the distinction between the older men and younger men, older women and younger women. And so it's not attempting to push uh, elders who are women. It, the first quality qualification just simply in the Bible is you got to be a man. Absolutely. Uh, next, we'd say he must be orderly in his personal life. This comes from verse 2 of chapter 3 in First Timothy. Um, and there we, here we see the, the word temperate, uh, that he must be temperate. And this can refer to not using, you know, any alcohol, for example, but that, that would not fit the context. Uh, in fact, verse 3 deals with the issue of wine, of wine or drinking. Um, and so this term can and often does refer to a sober-mindedness, uh, a temperance in lifestyle, a man whose life is disciplined and purposeful. This, this order, orderliness would apply to all aspects of his life. So, so he might be a great guy. He might be nice. He might be loved by many people. But as you look at his life and you, you examine his home, you see it not orderly and controlled, especially in those biblical categories. That's not a temperate person. Right. Um, the, the wife, for example, she's like a weedy garden. 
um, the, the children can't seem to sit still to save their lives. There, there's no respect for the husband or the father. Finances are out of control. These are all habits that reflect what we would call... Um, additive. Additive traits, meaning they lack self-control. Um, I would also include with this one um, that, it, that it's a man who's not easily distracted or wavering in his emotions or convictions. Um, rather, he's one who doesn't foolishly react to a situation, but can rightly interpret it and then act in an appropriate way to build up rather than destroy. Um, so the idea there is one of balance and stability, and the result, uh, I would argue, is that those who are under his care generally tend to flourish because he is that stable, temperate force in their life. Yeah, he's not flying off the handle or going this way or that or changing. Right. Um, so the next one, he must personally be hospitable. That comes out of 1 Timothy 3.2 and Titus 1.8. Now, in the time of the letter, the writing of these letters, traveling was very hazardous. There were many believers on the roadways. Uh, many of them were itinerant preachers. Um, Third John talks about Gaius being praised for the manner in which he would open his home to other believers. What he's actually ta they're talking about is most, most likely traveling teachers and missionaries and evangelists. Along with opening one's home to fellow believers, the same would be tr uh, true to those who are even outside the church, people who just need a place to stay for one reason or another. So if you want to see a man who, so you rather you want to see a man who opens his home to others, he makes him feel welcome and loved. He does not view his home, in other words, as a place to retreat and have have a refuge, but rather it's a place to model his life and values to others who are watching. He doesn't use the excuse that he's an introvert or some other language to argue that somehow he's exempt from this. Uh, uh, an elder should be a hospitable individual. And sometimes that's natural. Sometimes you got to fight through that and say, we're going to do it because it's right, not because I'm enjoying it. Right, right. And, and then God usually gives you blessing and you find out they had more fun than you expected. <laughs> yeah. Not always so. <laughs> right. Um, next, he must control his anger. This comes from Titus chapter 1, verse 7. Uh, and the word here for anger actually refers to a wrathful, abiding type of anger. So it's it's not that occasional eruption that appears and then is gone. Rather, uh, as William Barclay says, uh, this is the wrath which a man nurses to keep it warm. Um, that's a good quote. Yeah. Um, this type of man would be destructive within leadership in many ways. Uh, these men are very difficult to work with in elders' meetings. <laughs> They're, they're unable to stay calm at times of stress. They're unable to forgive. Um, they, they use the pulpit uh, or their position to bully people. But doesn't it sound like uh, like Mars Hill? Yeah. What was his what? famous, uh, get on the bus or get under it? Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. no good. Or he also actually, I remember him using, and this, this illustration he used was uh, talking about some guy in the UFC, and he, was a train, he, he would train fighters. And he talked about how he'd get a young fighter who was feeling cocky and wasn't listening to him and submitting to him as his coach. And he says, and so what, what you have to do is you have to give him the ring and break his nose. And he's like, because he needs to know I'm the boss. And he says, he, he, and then he said, in the same way in the church, there's just times you need to break someone's nose. What people didn't know was at the time he was preaching it that uh, other elders were meeting with a key pastor 
and tell him to get off. And, and they fired him with no expectation or warning or anything. And he was one that was just being, you're gone. Mm -hmm. And so, and he was basically laying the groundwork yeah. to support because he was a very popular pastor. And, and that was his story. Anyhow. Yeah. Well, that's a good example. Um, yeah. I mean, these people are bullies. Um, they, they use their, their pulpit and their position to bully. And, and they're not a refuge in times of chaos. Uh, rather, they tend to create chaos. Yeah. Um, but but it does not mean they don't get angry either. Um, th that's a misconception. There are many things that a faithful leader should be angry about and righteously express it. Um, but the point here is that anger is not what is to define them. That's a good way to say it. it when you think of him, he's not an angry man. Yeah. In fact, people should be taken aback yeah. when they see him upset. It's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> maybe we should listen because there's something he's this this upsets him. Yeah, um, yeah. You, you should, and you should be approachable. I mean, when people come to you, they should realize how disarming and stable you actually are. Yeah, yeah. Okay. The next one would be he must not have a love of money. That's in First Timothy three three and Titus one seven. Um, this is a big one for today too. Uh, Timothy's passage describes a man who's caught up in the business of making money. So he's obsessed with it, uh, reluctant to part with it. It manifests itself with working too much, keeping up with the Joneses. It's the person who's never satisfied with whatever the allotment is that God gives him. Um, the, the emphasis in Titus's passage is greedy for gain. Um, it's the process that the man makes his money. Uh, so it's emphasizing that process. I, it, why does he do it? He's looking for more money. Uh, so he cheats on taxes. He takes advantage of widows. He lies on the time card. He pilfers. He embezzles. In fact, I, I literally heard two different stories in the last couple of days of either pastor or church secretaries who have been just blatantly stealing from their church, the church funds. What blows me away is the, the secretary one. The elders found out about it, and they, they thought that it was a mark of grace to just forgive her and keep her employed, huh. even though she took tens of thousands of dollars. You're like, um, <laughs> that's not right. Um, but this is very common today with the various ways pastors nowadays try to monetize their branding. Now, we're going to pause at this point to encourage you to buy a coffee mug. <laughs> no. <laughs> Anyhow. Um, but that, that big push, uh, you know, they get their own website with, where all their sermons are there, and everything's going through how, how they can make money, um, their, the books, all that. And meanwhile, yeah. the church is paying them a salary, but then they start getting these other streams of income. Um, it yeah, can, I ha can. I've always had a person, I mean, I can't prove this as evil with a Bible passage, but I've always had a personal problem when someone develops a website based on their name, yeah. like joesmith.com. You, you know, like, like it, it, this is all about you and your, I mean, you shouldn't be producing anything new if you're a faithful man who stands in line with a faithful leg, you know, so what, what is it about you that people are coming to and why, why is that happening? That, that for me has always been a flag. Yeah. Um, and, and not surprised when often those kinds of people end up falling. Right. Next one is he must not be controlled by wine, 1 Timothy 3.3, 3, Titus 1.7. Uh, this one's pretty obvious, um, but perhaps it's worth mentioning that neither of those passages are, however, teaching abstinence. The point is one of self-control, much like these other qualifications. Uh, the term refers to one who 
drinks too much and becomes a quarrelsome brawler. Uh, it's used to picture a drunkard, uh, basically. He is not one who lingers with his wine, unwilling to part from it, desirous for one more drink. Um, and so as a result, his life is just uncontrolled. Yeah, yeah, it's that simple. Uh, now, the Southern Baptists then take that a few steps extra and just say, you can't have any. Right. But that's beyond what the text is saying. Right. Um, the next one is that he needs to be a peace-loving man. Again, 1 Timothy 3.3 3 and Titus 1.7. Uh, the term is pugnacious, and it means a striker or a fighter. Um, due to the arrogant heart of this man, uh, when resisted in getting his way, he will actually become involved in physical confrontation. Um, I actually had that early on here. Not, not that I had to. But I had people literally threatening me with violence who were in leadership, and they, I remember them shaking their fists under me and threatening to knock my head off. And I'm just sitting there looking at them, and I remember telling one, "Shush and just sit down." And and he didn't know what to do, so he sat down. I'm like, "My goodness, um, we're arguing over an office chair." <laughs> <laughs> but you know it, that that propensity to anger, and yeah. uh, you know that can be very. Very easy with a pastor, too, and you can begin to use physical violence. In our culture, that's not as common, but in other cultures around the world, to slap a person or to strike them um, is a very demeaning act, and it's really it's what he's getting sh at. shame is behind yeah. it, too. Yeah, very much so. So in Acts 5, though, in verses 17 and 40, we see the Jewish leaders actually doing that. They, they ordered uh, the apostles to be beaten uh, and then ordered, don't go and talk anymore about these kinds of things. In Acts 23, 2, the uh, high priest Ananias actually commands others to strike Paul on the mouth. Uh, there's a definite tendency throughout history to use physical violence to affect your will and, it, like you said, bring shame to yeah, a person. Yeah. Uh, next one is he must be gentle. 1 Timothy 3, 3, 2 Timothy 2, 25, Titus 2, 2. Uh, a good one is... We see this quality in Christ himself in Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29. says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Why? For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Uh, this was also a quality of Paul, the apostle, 1 Thessalonians 2, 7. But we, we prove to be gentle among you as nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. It's also indicative of just general godly wisdom, James 3.13. Uh, he says, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of his wisdom. Um, it's also the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5.23. Um, it is necessary when you confront a sinning brother or sister, uh, something that an elder will commonly have to, to address. Uh, we see that in Galatians 6.1. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual... Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Um, the word used in Second uh, Timothy is different than the one used in the other two passages. The idea with uh, this one is it is, it is to be one who is meek and mild in temperament. Uh, this is a person who is easy to approach, again, not caustic or cutting. Yeah. So he also needs to be one who loves peace. So again, First Timothy three three and Second Timothy two twenty four. Uh, he's, in other words, uncontentious. Uh, he he resists strife. He's not uh, easily drawn into an argument. Uh, he's willing to defer in a disagreement for the sake of peace. Now I'm going to rush to add that 
there's some caveats to that. He, in other words, he backs down when it's not necessary to fight, that this is not a fight that needs to be done. There are times. That, yeah. At the yeah. same time, there are definitely times <laughs> that you have to fight. Um, it has to be done within those Christian boundaries. Um, so, you know, Proverbs 20, verse 3, keeping away from strife is an honor for a man, but any fool will quarrel. That's kind of the idea is, if in doubt, I'm going to argue, I'm going to fight, I'm going to push, I'm going to shove. Um make your life a living hell until you submit and come down. Yeah. Uh, it just shouldn't be the mark of a, a pastor or right. an elder. And then a final one, he must be able to bear evil without resentment. Uh, this one's a challenge. Yes. Uh, 2 Timothy 2.24. Um, th- this, this word here pictures a person putting up with the evil that is done against him. Uh, the, the people who are, are to be shepherded, don't always cooperate with leadership. Really? Uh, just throwing that out there. Um, so <laughs> We're laughing. It, it's just part of anyone who leads anything understands that, that you have, you're just saying, we're going to go this way, and you look behind you, and they're all out. <laughs> He's like, I meant that. Come yeah. on. There's those, uh, what's the famous uh, picture that you see two little tracks behind you the whole way, just from someone digging their heels in. Oh, yeah, where and, you're dragging a person. Yeah. And just the, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so a pastor, an elder, anyone who wants to get into that, um, they should just expect at some point to be rejected. Uh, if, if they feel it necessary to confront the people involved, then it's to be done with a pure heart. And here's the point, seeking repentance and reconciliation, not vengeance. That's the issue. Um, in fact, one of the most common temptations that a pastor is going to face um, if he actually engages his people as a shepherd, is that of bitterness, right? Yeah, we were actually talking about this earlier yeah. off, off mic. Yeah, it's great. It's a great challenge. That's a fight. Um, he, he, and why? Because the pastor is an easy target for malicious words, malicious actions. Um, it hurts to try to minister to people and then later find out that they're trying to destroy you behind the scenes. And if not destroy you, at least cut you down or undermine yeah. you. Or um, second guess or... yeah. Just a multitude of ways that, and we talked about that in the Hebrews uh, 11 pass uh, or 13 passage where it says, submit and obey your your leaders for they give watch over your soul, but let them do that with joy for it would be unprofitable for you to do otherwise, right? And that there's just that there are those people who make it hard for a leader to lead. Um, and you, you, you have, I'm sure you have caught yourself many times literally preaching yourself, but I will still shepherd. You, yeah, you have to. You have to. In fact, there would be times where this is stuff I would counsel Kim, my wife. Um, this was er, in the early days where there was just a lot of strife and, and unrest in the church. And she would find out, because I, I shared, I generally would share most things with her. Um, she was my confidant back then and um, still is. Um, and so, but I had to be careful because I would tell her about how some I came under attack somehow. Well, then Sunday comes, and we're at a church with only maybe 25 adults in the church, so you can't hide. And the in comes that person who has been systematically attacking me, and you know her her desire is to go scratch her eyes out, um, <laughs> you know. And and so we would talk. It's like you will speak kindly to them, and you will pray for. Them. And she, to her credit, she took that very seriously. Um, and it, it was a joy to watch her, that she would engage in that fight, because it's like, that's my husband you're talking about, and, and you're attacking. He hasn't done anything. But 
it, it's a constant battle, uh, especially when you're young in the ministry. Um, people forget that younger pastors make mistakes. They they just do. They're younger. Um, and you want to show that pastor kindness and grace and not attack. Uh, but the pastor also has to have that spirit where he's willing to bear up under um, attacks because it is just part of the job. And if, you, you're, if you're not good at that, if you're not willing to learn that, then you should not get into pastoral ministry, elder oversight. That's one of the things I do watch for is a person who is prone to anger, stubborn, likes to argue, and can't handle any kind of criticism. When I see that kind of stuff going on, I, I'm, I'm very reluctant to look at him as a potential elder until those things are resolved, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. So we're going to end here, um, and we hope this gives you some things to think about, and we hope that you do think about it. If you're thinking about becoming an elder or a pastor, then these are things that must already be present in your life. And so if they're not, um, well, then you got some things to begin to work on and develop. And if you have leaders who are not in compliance with these qualifications, then you have what are now called unqualified leaders. Um, (laughs) And you should consider if you can rightly continue at that church. Um, perhaps you have the ability and the influence to speak into these things. And if you do, we'd say, you know, seek to try and do so wisely. But if you're not in that position, then it's very likely that you should begin to rethink your church. Um, so we're going to pick up on this in our next episode, uh, Lord willing, and try and develop this a bit more. But until then, make sure to tune in, join the conversation. We'd love to hear your thoughts on elder and overseer and bishops. And don't forget to like, share, comment, rate, review. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And tell a friend.